All right, welcome to Evan the Counselor Live. I'm Evan the Counselor. I got two awesome guests here. First, I have Lily the Social Worker, as I call her. I'm so, Lily the Social Worker. That's her influencer name, even though she doesn't want to be an influencer. No, not But yet. some of you know her. She's been on our podcast, and I really wanted to bring her on because she is an inpatient psychiatric social worker, and I thought there'd be no better person to join me for our main guest today. This is Cody Green, a.k.a. the Schizophrenic Hippie. Cody, how you doing, man? Good. How are you guys doing? Doing great. I mean, yeah, I'm so happy to have you on. I've been following you for quite a while. I love what you're doing. I mean, I think it's super unique, um, you know, specializing, you know, talking about uh, thought disorder, which is something that in mental health, um, you know, especially in mental health, social media, you don't really hear much about. And especially among professionals, not a lot of professionals talk about it. And I find that too in, um, in the world of mental health services, not a lot of people specialize in it unless you're like really working in a psychiatric inpatient setting. I think now there are a lot more programs that are emerging for like first episode psychosis that we have here, which is pretty cool. But anyways, yeah, I mean, I, I love that we have you on here and I maybe first question, you just want to share with us a little bit about your background, um, you know, how you got to be where you're at now. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, uh, like you mentioned, my name's Cody Green. I am diagnosed with undifferentiated schizophrenia. I know schizophrenia is now diagnosed more as a spectrum, uh, but when I was diagnosed, I was diagnosed specifically with undifferentiated schizophrenia. Um, and for anyone who doesn't know, that's kind of a combination of the different types that there used to be. And so I was showing types of all the, I was showing aspects of all the different types. So I was showing aspects of disorganized schizophrenia, catatonic schizophrenia, mm -hmm. and paranoid schizophrenia. And uh, I started having symptoms when I was about 19 years old. I wasn't formally diagnosed until about 21. And the reason for that was in that amount of time, I tried to use drugs as a coping mechanism. So I did struggle with addiction for a while, which led to uh, a short bout of incarceration for me as well, which all plays a really big part into my story, talking about not only schizophrenia, but how meant or how addiction and incarceration also played a role in my development and getting treatment. For sure. And that's such a I definitely want to dive deeper into that because that's such a common story, you know, of like people that I know in my personal life who had it being diagnosed around a similar time, immediately going to substances, the higher rates of incarceration, homelessness. Um, there's definitely a lot there. Yeah. Yeah. And I then, figured, uh, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Oh, sorry. <laughs> I was going to, and then that unknowingly started what I, now do which is motivational speaking and social media full-time uh i didn't ever plan on doing this it was something that just sort of happened my wife showed me a stupid kids app called TikTok, and i was like i don't want to look at this this is such a waste of time and i refused to download it for like a year but she kept sending me videos i was like whatever i'll download it download it i was like whatever i'll post a video or two and then here i am 1.2 million followers later and being able to share like my story and just be able to utilize TikTok as more of a mental health platform, which I, I know a lot of people were not using it as when it came out. And it's good to see a lot of other mental health creators growing and being able to utilize that platform as a, an educational 
factor as well. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think your and I story is very similar as far as the social media. It's like, I never really planned on it. I always thought that would be something cool to do or do some writing. And then, you know, you hear about TikTok and it's like, you know, still people think it's like a dance app. Yep. And you're like, what do you want me to do? You want me to go on and do some dances? And I think a lot of the early like mental health contests, like influencers, like dancing and then like pointing to titles. Like there are still some who do that, but yeah, that was that. like when people did start talking about it, it was in either the form of like dancing and then be like, like you said, pointing at some sort of caption or story times, which is actually how like my page got started too. I started what I called schizophrenic story time. And my first, that was my first viral video ever really yeah when was that like um it's, it's always a fun memory or like a cool yeah it was you have a viral video you're like whoa my uh it was the very first the very first viral video i had was about three weeks into making videos i started off just making goofy videos i wasn't really talking about myself or my experience um and after a couple of weeks like schizophrenia is such a big part of my life i was i just wanted to talk about it be able to tell someone what I was struggling with because I live in a very small rural community. It's very hard to talk about mental illness, let alone schizophrenia in a small rural area where it's not very well understood. And so I thought maybe someone else online would be able to understand my story or be able to, you know, chat about their own experience. So I told this story about my time in college um, and unfortunately, when I was in college, I had to drop out because of my psychotic break. But the very first story I remember about being in college and my very first experience remembering hallucinations was at the school library. And I was chatting with someone. The librarian came up and asked me to leave. And I didn't realize it was because I had been talking to myself the entire time. And so I shared that story and I went from, I think, 600 followers to 10,000 followers overnight. Mm -hmm. And that overnight. just overnight. Yeah. And so I just that logged is. on the app and I was like, oh my gosh. And so I, that just became what I did. I just talked about my experiences and, and here we are now. And that shows you the need, the you yep. know, people craving that, you know, to talk about it, to not feel so alone in their own experience. Yeah, absolutely. A lot of the people that reach out to me say either they do struggle with schizophrenia or schizoaffective disorder, uh, or they know someone who does. And that's why they watch my content. Uh, I also have a lot of doctors, psychiatrists, therapists that all follow uh, because mm -hmm. I, I've had a lot of psychiatrists tell me um, they've used some of the techniques I talk about um, and told their, the people they work with and they've worked really well for them. And so to have, to have someone tell you that is life-changing to know that the things that I've done that I've learned over the years to help me recognize hallucinations or methods that I have for coping are helping other people that may have never heard of them. Cody, when, when did that first video go viral? Like what was the timeline of that? Oh my goodness. 2000 and I want to say 19 I think I joined TikTok in 2019 so it really hasn't been that long though that all this has happened no it's it's just a few years now and it's been a lot of ups and downs because as a person who is becoming more of a full-time creator and also struggles with mental illness 
Um, I do have to know when to separate myself and when to take time off. And that can be really difficult for social media pages because people like consistent content. And fortunately I've built a very understanding following. People are very good at knowing Cody's going to take time off here and there. There might not always be content. And I'm super grateful to be able to do that because I don't think all creators have the leisure of doing that. Yeah, no, absolutely. And it, one of the other things that like strike that struck me about your content when I first came across it and, you know, continue to watch it is just that level of vulnerability of personal vulnerability. I mean, things a little different for me is like, you know, representing as a professional. So I'm just like, really standoffish about that but you know you as someone who suffers with it I mean I'm not I can't really and there are a lot of other mental health creators of like borderline personality disorder and share you know but to the level of vulnerability you know being able to share to admit that you are struggling I think that is really hard for a lot of people it's amazing it's truly amazing because people are struggling so much in silence and to see that is is powerful. When I started, what really disappointed me was the most views from my page came from uh, the videos I made either duetting schizophrenia jokes or when I I do use uh, humor as a coping mechanism. So I do make a lot of jokes about schizophrenia. And what would happen was that would be all of the views uh, on my page was just Mm -hmm. these jokes. And it was because I wasn't ever willing to show the real side of it. So even though I started by telling these stories, I never really showed what it was like living with schizophrenia. And so one of the things I thought might be interesting for people to see, which is most of my viral videos now are the videos of me having symptoms and using my phone to record those symptoms. And then I used to just verify and delete them. So I would use the phone to verify whether or not the person was really there. And then I would just delete the video. And so what I started doing was taking those videos and posting them because people were able to see how scared I was, how distraught I was, how real it was to me. Because in that moment, the person I think is there is real to me. And people will ask like, how real? And the best way for me to say it is if I'm in a room with three people, one of them is a hallucination. I am not going to know which one is real and which one isn't. So I started finding coping mechanisms like technology. I have a service dog that also helps me identify whether or not I'm talking to someone who isn't there. And so um, these techniques I started recording and they became my most viral videos because even the people who are talking about schizophrenia are not showing what it's really like. They're just sharing their experiences, which is great. It's still a really good way to help people better understand it, but I I think people learn better when they can see how difficult it is. Yeah. And it's not easy for me to post those videos. I like, I won't go back and watch them because it's like embarrassing for me, but also I don't want to see the comments on them. There are a lot of negative comments. Mm -hmm. People will say I'm faking it for like more views. And so I've avoided going back and watching those videos, but I know how important they are for people being able to better understand the illness. I have questions, a couple questions about yeah. this. I, I, got a few I, so I love, I saw some of those videos. I was absolutely like astounded in such a good way. I thought that was amazing. Those skills are incredible. Um, what an amazing, like amazing way to, it's your reality testing yourself. 
And I've actually never heard of someone doing that before. Um, it's incredible. Uh, that's truly amazing. Um, I also wondered if at times, do you ever have times that you're not like when you're recording yourself, do you have times that you don't remember like certain, um, like, like times that if you have, like when you have had psychosis or in, you're in midst of breaks, are there certain points that you don't remember? Or do you always remember? I actually, uh, like most people with psychosis and hallucinations, I usually don't remember the symptoms at all. So like that's been really influential in just understanding the illness better for me too, because by keeping these videos and rewatching them, I can see different ways that I've struggled and coped and been able to um, work through my symptoms. Mm -hmm. And the, uh, there's also, I've, I didn't realize this. And this is just an example. I didn't realize that when I have symptoms, after I started taking medication, I get a physical twitch when I have symptoms and I never recognize that in myself. I don't notice it when it's happening, but people will recognize it in me. And so when I started recording, I would see it. My face would twitch. I get very, I get very quiet. And so there are physical ways to tell that I'm having symptoms. That's that is interesting. You know, that's a piece that I'm always trying to um, educate families on who are trying to support loved ones is, you know, they're saying they don't remember this. It's like, there's a little bit of, I think, disbelief in that, that they don't really always believe that loved ones don't remember what's happening um, during periods of psychosis. But no, there's um, very real, <laughs> psychotic amnesia is a very real thing. And I think you recording yourself is amazing, um, not just for all the reasons you just listed, but also for that. Um, yeah. And that's why I wanted to ask you that because you're kind of just validating a thing that's very real for people. And I think so important for families to understand that, that people really don't remember a lot of what happens. Yeah. Episodes. Well, and th the unfortunate aspect about it also is, uh, I do this, what I call schizophrenic story time to be able to share my experiences, but a lot of those experiences I don't remember. And so the ones I do remember, I share over and over again, because they're either some of the first hallucinations I had, or they're memorable in some way. And so there are probably hundreds of thousands of other stories I could tell over the many years I've been struggling with this now, but so many of them, I just, I can't recall, like, I'll remember that I had symptoms the previous day because I either had to leave work or I had, you know, people texting me, asking me if I'm all right. So like, I know that I had symptoms, but the details of the symptoms are usually not with me after the fact. And on the rare occasion that it is, it's because I was able to identify it and take note of it before I forgot the situation. Yeah, it's interesting. I never really, I never knew that there was such a amnesia element to it. Uh, you know, that's fascinating. Something I didn't even know. Before we get too much deeper, Cody, what is, I'd love to hear actually both of your take on this, but like Cody, for you as someone who struggles, like what is your, how do you define a thought disorder or schizophrenia? Like what is your personal definition when you explain it to people? 
when people ask me specifically about what is schizophrenia and what do I deal with, I explain to them the main symptoms I have, which are visual and auditory hallucinations, delusions, and paranoia. Those are the main symptoms that I struggle with. Um, obviously, psychosis is a very real symptom that I have as well, but I primarily deal with hallucinations and delusions. Now that I've been medicated, the frequency of those symptoms have changed dr dramatically. I used to have symptoms constantly throughout the day. I probably have hallucinations a few times a week, very minimal, not too much to interrupt my life. Uh, medication has literally made me a functioning person because before I was so confused and afraid that I wasn't able to do anything. And so when people ask me about the illness, the best way I can explain it is just by explaining the most common symptoms that I have. But for a thought disorder, I just like to remind people that what everyone else experiences may not be what I'm experiencing. I could be in a room with 10 people all experiencing the same thing and be in a completely different place. And I think that's hard for people to understand. Uh, I still continue to work part-time jobs just because I like being able to interact with people and all of my coworkers, I, I really let them know what I struggle with because there gets to be a point where no matter how well I'm doing, I am going to have symptoms at work. And so it's easier for me and the people around me if I'm able to explain to them what's going on. Well, yeah, I mean, that's something that's, you know, got to be tough to talk about, you know, to like disclose, you know, kind of like you mentioned, when we were chatting earlier about uh, your struggles with addiction, right? That's something I work with clients. I like, how do you tell people? When do you tell people? When is it appropriate? Um, and I really thought of that because it, I think it's very uncommon that someone with schizophrenia, I mean, I think people should understand and correct me if I'm wrong, is it's one of the most, if not the most debilitating type of disorder that someone could have. And, you know, before the advent of these medications, it was, you just could not live anywhere near a normal life, you know, prior to what was in the 70s, 60s, like when the first antipsychotics came out. Um, you know, that's amazing that people could even do that now. Yeah, it, it really shows how much medication has changed because I watched my mother struggle with schizoaffective disorder as a child. So not only do I have the experience of being someone with schizophrenia, I was actually raised by someone with a schizophrenia related illness. And so I watched her go through the early to late nineties and how different medical treatment has changed even since then because she was misdiagnosed. She was put on meds that she shouldn't have been on. Um, and they did everything except give her the diagnosis that she needed to get the right treatment. And so I'm very fortunate. And I know that sounds weird. Every time I say that people are like, what do you mean? I feel very fortunate that my mother was able to be there for me because when I went, when I finally accepted that I needed to go get help and that I was struggling, um, it was very quick for me to get my diagnosis because um, schizophrenia and schizophrenia related disorders do have a genetic component to them. Mm -hmm. And so knowing that my mom had struggled with this, it was very easy for me to get in and get treatment and be able to get effective treatment right away. And it's probably the reason I was able to maintain a lot of my outgoing personality. A lot of the people I know with schizophrenia 
um, didn't get treatment in a decent amount of time. And it causes you to get very sheltered. It causes you to become almost a recluse. And so I've seen that in a lot of my mutual friends. And that's one of the reasons I feel very fortunate is I was always a really outgoing person. Uh, when I started antipsychotics, one of the reasons I was afraid to take them was because I thought it would diminish my personality, make me a zombie. And that was the farthest thing from the truth. It actually was what preserved my ability to continue to talk to people and do stuff like this. Yeah. And you know, it's interesting you say that. And that's one of the things I, a couple things you talked about that I wanted to bring up first. I know there's a lot of like new research coming out because yeah, it makes a lot of sense that there is a strong genetic component, but I think that we're learning more and more and correct me if I'm wrong, that a lot of it is environmental too, like levels of stress, adverse childhood experiences. And that even like, let's say, even if you were adopted, that you would have a higher chance of developing a thought disorder if you have a caregiver who has it as well, which was something that surprised me when I heard, I don't know if you all have heard that or. Well, if you were adopted, you mean if the caregiver that adopted you? Yeah. Yes and yes and no. So I think that there's a couple things. So you can have gen sorry, genetic preloading, right? And it's whatever, what is going to cause the gene to express itself. Mm -hmm. So that can be stressors in your environment growing up. And um, so I think that's, that can be a factor too. Um, I hadn't heard that about the the caregiver with schizophrenia, although it would make sense because that could be a very stressful environment. But I would be interested then to look back into like the adopted child's biological family and then see if there was mental health issues in the biological parents on either side. And I would imagine that the environment in which they were raised maybe by the caregiver might be a little stressful, although that is totally stigmatizing. And I don't know that for sure, but that could be a factor. I don't know, Cody, I don't know what your opinion on that is. I, since I've been diagnosed with schizophrenia, I do, I do interact a lot with other people that have been diagnosed with it, including people who have had kids. And I've been able to interview my own mom and talk about, you know, my experience growing up. And there are a lot of cases that I've seen with parents who have children that don't develop the disorder. And then uh, in my case, even my mom has three kids out of the three kids, all of us are almost past that age range of development. So my two youngest siblings are kind of still in that age range, but they're near the end of it now. None of, neither of them has shown any symptoms whatsoever. Mm -hmm. And so I do think, I do think there is both the genetic component and the environmental component, because unfortunately for me, um, I was raised in way less suitable standards just because I was the first kid. My mom was still struggling with her disorder. And just like me, my mom also struggled with addiction. And I don't know how much of that my little siblings remember, but most of that was done by the time my youngest sibling was born. So I endured a lot of the, the stress as a kid. And so whether or not that played a role, like I'll never know. But it definitely makes me think it could be something that increased my chances of development for the disorder. Well, it seems like, yeah, there is a genetic predisposition for people to have psychosis, but it seems like there's, you know, just like with addiction, you know, my background where we all have a certain predisposition, some people, they could go through every adverse experience, have parents 
and they'll never express that. But there are people who are more susceptible and they may or may not become, you know, addicts, alcoholics, whatever you want to call it, people with use disorders, uh, because the light switch was never turned on. Like some people yeah. just don't have it. Um, and it's all like, on, it's all on a spectrum. So like perhaps your siblings could have that uh, vulnerability, but it just never got expressed. Yeah. Well, and you made a really good point there also with like the addiction aspect. So um, being raised by a mother who struggled with addiction, I struggled with addiction. And although my uh, younger brother, sorry, my wife's closing the door. One second. Can't hear anything. Um, so although my younger brother didn't end up struggling with schizophrenia or schizophrenia related illness, he did struggle with addiction as well. Um, and so I, like, I've always, I've always wondered what, what it is about addiction where it seems like it could have a genetic component, but it might also just be environmental. And so I think about that a lot when I talk about my schizophrenia, because uh, a lot of my motivational speaking events, I talk about the two. Because like I said, I, I really do think all of that played a role into my life experience. And I think it's important to have the conversation about all aspects. Mm-hmm. And it seems like, you know, from my experience, I'm sure from yours and like the people I know, like who I've met in recovery environments, and it's pretty inspiring when someone is even able to get to that point where they could go to a meeting um, who who's had psychosis or has schizophrenia schizoaffective um you know that i guess my question is what does it do for someone who has schizophrenia why is why are substances so attractive or you know self-medicating like does it help or just helps the pain or what was your experience there was two different reasons why i used illegal drugs and the first was brief moments of silence um when my symptoms first began there were there was so many of them i was having auditory hallucinations constantly throughout the day to the point where i would be up all night because i could not sleep days at a time and so the only thing that would give me any silence at all was drugs and the problem with it was I saw it as a solution, but it was such a brief solution at the time. I didn't care because it was the only thing I found that would give me any silence. It was the only thing that I found that would stop the visual hallucinations. And so that was the main reason that I started using drugs as a way to cope. But later on, I felt like I recognized that I was still having these symptoms But the reason I continued to use drugs was because in my mind, I was convincing myself that what I was seeing and hearing was from the drugs. And Mm -hmm. so I don't know if it was because I wasn't ready to admit that I was struggling with the illness or because there's so much stigma surrounding it. I watched my mom struggle for years just with friends and family who were too afraid to come around us because she was diagnosed with schizoaffective disorder. And so I refused to believe that it was my brain doing it. I was like, oh, that's just the drugs. Like, that's why I'm hearing voices. That's why I'm seeing things. And so although I originally started to quiet the voices, I continued to do it because it validated what I was experiencing without having to admit that I may may have had a problem. That is such a beautiful explanation. I feel like that is such a concise effective explanation I feel like that is so true for so many people but you just said it so effectively yeah and what's interesting with drugs in my experience in that world is 
And this is something I want to get into as well, especially it's super relevant now, but it seems like some drugs, I'm curious as to which ones and your experience, if you care to go into that, but some drugs seem to like just grease the wheels for hallucinations and delusions. And I, I know I would imagine that's a lot of your experience. And when I worked in a psych unit, it's like, is this drugs or is this psychosis? Um, like for one of our friends who struggled with it, like whenever he would smoke weed, like that would throw him off. And right now there's so many people coming to psych units and coming to see me who have these symptoms. And I still have a hard time teasing it out because they're like you said, being delusions, like delusions, hallucinations, uh, paranoia, right? Those could it, like weed, like, especially the stronger weed is throwing people into this. And then the other big one is stimulants. Yeah. Like meth is probably the worst one that I've seen that, you know, people have psychosis. So which ones for you helped and which ones hurt? In the beginning. So this is something I haven't really talked about publicly before because um, it is still illegal in my state. Marijuana is still illegal in Wisconsin. I did used to consume marijuana and after I was medicated. So I actually have had fairly positive experiences, but the reason I don't talk about that too much is because I want to, I want to do a full video explaining that just because I don't get increased symptoms and I've actually found a relief of my symptoms that that is not going to be the case for everyone. And so I've avoided talking to, about it to this point because one, I want to wait until there's more research done about it, but both me and my, my schizoaffective mother have used it as a, as a positive way of coping. The drugs I did of, struggle with were, um, yeah. yep. And so there are people coming out and saying they have positive experiences with marijuana. It's not something I want to make super public on my page until, you know, until I have more of a chance to explain why I, why it's helped me and explain that it's not going to be positive for everyone. There are definitely people who are going to use it and it's going to trigger their symptoms. And so it needs to be done with caution, obviously, um, when I was really struggling though, I used mostly stimulants and hallucinogenic drugs. And like I said, the reason I got into hallucinogenic drugs, mushrooms, LSD were because when I started using drugs, it was, I wanted to stay awake. I wanted to shut off the voices. When I kept using drugs, it was because I wanted to blame the drugs for what I was experiencing, which is why I switched to hallucinogenic drugs i, I could be like oh so, so stimulants first then the hallucinogens that is so it's like a most common story yeah well, i'd love to hear more about your experience you know in you know an inpatient adult psych unit and what you see in the commonalities among different thought disorder patients i just have a lot of feelings about this like the drug thing so, yeah <laughs> a lot of them so first of all see a lot of people say the same thing that Cody just said about the marijuana yeah, I never knew that. soothing their symptoms. And I have also similar feelings that for some people it, it can be helpful. So, yeah. but I'm not a doctor and I don't, this is not, this is not advice. Please go see your own professional. <laughs> that's, okay. that's why I'm weary to talk about it. Yeah, Cause I exactly. want to be clear. Like, yeah. I am not a professional. I'm not just... a professional in this area. <laughs> yeah. So yep. just, I'm just making that very, 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 very pleased to your own professional um, healthcare professional. Thank you. Good disclaimer. Yeah. Thanks okay. for helping us with our liability yeah. here on the show. <laughs> but I, I really, really feel that. But, um, but 
I just, I, I see what you're saying. And um, yeah. So the other thing I feel strongly about is this constant sort of thing about, you know, did someone get psychotic or did someone develop schizophrenia because they started smoking weed? Again, not a doctor, um, but mostly I think, no, I think that people um, use drugs to cope with their symptoms. And I think that it leads to um, a delayed uh, diagnosis. And I think that it is a really big problem in our, in our system right now, because people are constantly saying, is it substance induced versus, uh, as, you know, schizophreniform versus like, a you know, schizophrenia and, or whatever, unspecified psychotic disorder. And what the problem is with that is, you know, people will say, well, we'll treat them all the same. So it doesn't really matter, but actually there are programs that won't take people if there is an indication that it might be substance induced. Yeah. And like I've been hearing what you're saying, Cody, it sounds like your early intervention and kind of aggressive intervention to treatment and getting your meds right. So early on, it kind of sounds like it, you're saying it protected your brain a little bit. Yeah. And, and I definitely we, go ahead. I definitely feel like it was the reason I was able to hold on a lot to who I was and be able to get through treatment more successfully. And we know that like research shows that the earlier um, the intervention, the better people do and the better the long-term prognosis is. So I have a lot of feelings and most of the negative about that whole thing about yeah. the substance induced versus blah, 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 blah. What do you think, like if you had a magic wand or like, what do you think we're maybe doing wrong? I just don't like, I, I hate the way everything is so fixated on the kids smoking marijuana and that's how they got schizophrenia or this or that. There are very honestly clear like if someone is, um, for example, psychotic from meth, it is a very clear picture versus if someone is um, psychotic when they have um, a schizophrenic illness or other psychotic illness uh, or a psychotic disorder. And that would, it's just a very clear difference. Um, and the, the delusions are different. The paranoia is different. They just go to very, like the themes are different and and so it's just, let's get people help. Let's intervene and get them the help they need and stop like putting our dollars and our funding in like pots and pots and pots and like taking things and making them so hard um, for people to get to. Like, let's just get them help. So if you don't know, you know, so let's get them help. But what help do you, do you give them the schizophrenia help? Like if someone's coming in, it, like, so one of our friends, he he's, pretty recently, but he's been working at this pretty innovative program here in Minnesota. It's a first episode psychosis and it's with teenagers, right? Yeah. Usually younger than the typical uh, development. And I asked him, I said, well, what's the most common reason? He said, weed, right? And then yeah. I asked him and he, he, was, he couldn't really like give me an answer, but it was like, okay, well, how many of these kids would be eventually like, what is weed the thing that turned it on or you know, or is this literally just from the powerful weed they're using? Because he said that's like one of the number one reasons. So like, what do you, what do you do? So my thing is first, always start with treating addiction before you look at mental illness, because a lot of the time what people are experiencing um, isn't necessarily a first psychotic break. It's uh, 
temporary psychosis Mm -hmm. because drug-induced psychosis is a very real thing. There aren't really any studies that can prove drug-induced schizophrenia. So that's, that's where I try to draw the line when I talk about it. Everyone always asks me because I talk about being an addict. I talk about schizophrenia and everyone always assumes that I'm saying addiction came first. I, I never partook in any sort of addictive activities before my diagnosis. Yeah. I wasn't one to consume anything. I live in Wisconsin. I maybe had some drinks, couple beers at a couple parties. I was not one to be out doing drugs. It just wasn't something that I did. And so when people assume that it frustrates me because what I feel like people are saying is you're schizophrenic because of your own actions. Yes. And yes. that that was really hard for me when I finally went to go get help because like you like you guys have both talked about, a lot of the time it is recognized as an addiction issue first. But unfortunately you can't treat a mental illness until you've dealt with the addiction. I think what um, that program that your friend is running might see in the long term is if they're able to deal with any addiction issues up front, and it could be a marijuana addiction um, that could be affecting temporary psychosis. um, If they're able to deal with that first, they might see relief of symptoms. I actually know a few people who uh, early on around the age range of like preteen, early teen, not quite the age range of development for schizophrenia struggled with uh, intermittent psychosis because they had experimented with drugs, had so much stress or endured a really traumatic experience. Um, But I do know of a lot of people who never had symptoms again, once those issues were dealt with. So, and I'm not trying, I'm not claiming to be an expert. This is just from experiences of my own and people that I know. Um, and so that's why I try to differentiate between yes, drugs can absolutely cause psychosis. They can absolutely be a huge factor in somewhat developing an illness, but they need to be dealt with as the addiction so that we can deal with, deal with whatever the mental illness is separately. Um, and that's what was successful with me. I dealt with addiction before I dealt with schizophrenia. And two more things um, are this. So the, I just lost my train of thought. (laughs) So I think that in kids, like what you're talking about is traumatic experiences in childhood and PTSD should also be looked at. Um, yeah. mm-hmm. that's a really, uh, big differential that needs to be looked at. I also think that, um, drug induced psychosis clears up much more quickly. And that's, um, something that should definitely be considered. And if someone clears up that quickly, it's very unlikely that it would be schizophrenia. Although in the first, if someone is kind of teetering on the edge in those kind of first like six months when they're developing schizophrenia, symptoms can wax and wane. So then that can be kind of confusing too. Yeah. Yeah. And one of the, like, I could think of a couple of cases like in just private practice therapy, you know, cause of my addiction background, I was sometimes joke that, you know, half the time it's like parents calling me, like my son, he's 19, 20, hasn't left the house. And I can remember a couple of cases where they'd bring their kid in and they didn't even realize it because sometimes it's so subtle with like delusions yeah right where they're like he's saying all these things that we don't understand and the kid would be in my office with the family and i'm just like and i could see it right i'm just like these are delusions 
I've seen it before, but then I don't know what to do because it's like, and I don't, I don't know. And like, kind of like my gut in these situations, like, I'm like, this just looks so much like schizophrenia. It looks so much like a delusional disorder that like, and especially like with the age in their early twenties, I'm like, oh, I, I can't say for sure. What's that? What's different? Delusional disorder. Sorry. Yeah. Well, and I don't know because they're having, del- you know, that's still in the thought disorder family. Right. And yep. it's like, you know, and yeah, it just seems so much. And I don't know if they were like seeing things, hearing things per se, but it, you know, a lot of times it's the, like, wouldn't you say it's like the delusions that start most commonly with people? And I know that that like there's the uh, prodromal, right? There are the negative symptoms that I think a lot of people don't know about, right? That usually starts as like a mood disorder, depression, catatonia. I think depression and like often people will just sort of report. And actually, Cody, you're the expert here. And um, so I really want to hear what you think about this. But in my own just like observation, people will report these like vague feelings of like like just unease or like just feeling anxious but it's really vague they can't like pinpoint what's actually wrong and this is before any like actual hallucinations or psychosis or anything like actually sets in so it's really hard for me because I don't remember a lot of when it started what I do remember was experiencing paranoia first. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember the hallucinations followed by the delusions because my very first delusion that I can recall was me thinking the voices I was hearing was like me gaining a superpower. I honestly believed that I was hearing other people's thoughts. And so I had this ongoing delusion that, oh, there's nothing wrong with me. I I'm gaining some sort of special ability and that's very common for people from what I've been able to tell now, um, having talked to a lot of people with schizophrenia, it's very common for some sort of initial delusion to start. A lot of it is religious delusion is super, super common. Um, Mm -hmm. but you know, there's also delusion that you're in a coma, which is something I struggled with after a car accident. I had there's delusion that you're, you know, hearing a greater, being or you're you are a greater being and so there's so many things that could happen initially but paranoia was the first thing I remember it was the first thing that people noticed around me as well my wife and my mom both both recognized the paranoia first before I ever said anything about having symptoms or delusion as for like the actual feelings it's really hard for me to pinpoint because I was just starting college I was super stressed out I was you know, it, it's, you really can't pick a worse age for a, de, for a disorder to develop 18 to 25 is like, and that's why I do a lot of motivational speaking at colleges now. Cause I think that is some of the most important work I do is being able to talk with people who a might be going through that and not willing to admit it or B know someone who is going through symptoms like that and is able to intervene and maybe get them some help. Yep. And I think you're right. I think it's that the, the paranoia for sure. And, yeah. and, and people saying that they feel stressed, but it's vague. Yeah. They'll just say I I'm stressed, but it's very vague. Cause, and I think it is a lack of wanting to admit anything mm-hmm. more. I bet a lot of it is people are saying they feel stressed and not yeah. because the first time I ever went in before I was ever ready to get the help I needed. I remember my mom and wife were like, you should just go talk to someone. So I went 
but I didn't say anything other than, Oh, you know, it's just been rough. I'm stressed. I got school. And like at that time I was already experiencing hallucinations, but I'm not going to tell someone that because I was so paranoid at the time. I was delusional at the time. Like I I wouldn't even tell my mom and wife, like they could tell they were able to identify it, but I, I wouldn't admit it to them for over a year. And you can tell someone's preoccupied, but, but they will not, it's, you're guarded, right? Like you won't, you won't talk about it because you're paranoid, yeah. right? Right. Was there some fear too, where you're like, this isn't adding up, you know, and I know this isn't adding up and I know that I quote sound crazy. So, you know, that's why maybe you say something like I'm stressed. Cause you're like, you don't want to admit it or because I think the hard part too, is that, you know, when you're having a delusion, like it's so real to you. Yeah. Right. So it's like, do you know that? And you're just kind of covering it. I would say you know that I would say, no, I did not recognize then that I was having delusions or paranoia. So at the time when it was going on, my biggest fear was I grew up with a mother with schizoaffective disorder. I've seen the inside of psych wards before I ever had to go to one. And so my biggest fear was, they're going to find me, throw me in and lock away the key. Like, this is it for me. This is going to be the rest of my life is living in a psych facility. And, you know, movies and TV shows paint a really dramatic, scary image of facilities like that. As I've grown up and had to go to quite a few of them, I've realized there are really good experiences you can have getting the care you need. Um, But initially, a lot of that can be traumatic watching a friend or family member go through it, or even the first time people go to a psych ward, you hear so many horror stories. And the main reason for that is it's not a good situation for anyone, for the workers, for the person going through it. No one is going to be able to make the best out of a really, really unfortunate situation. And so it paints this really frightening image. And so I was, I was afraid people were watching me. I, at the time, I don't know if I thought the cops were going to come get me and bring me to the psych ward, but I just had this never ending fear. I was afraid of cops. I was afraid of doctors. I was afraid of nurses. I, I became afraid of the people around me. So I had one of my first paranoia delusional states I had was that my wife was trying to poison me or put sedatives in my food so that she could put me to sleep and I would go to the psych ward. And that's why I started using stimulants. Cause I was like, I can't sleep. If I go to sleep, the voices are going to be able to, you know, get me, they're going to trick me or the people around me are going to put me away. And so I started using cocaine and methamphetamine to stay awake for days on end because I was too afraid to go to sleep. And so it's one of those things where looking back, I realize now as a medicated person, how insane that sounds. And that it wasn't even my thought process of like, oh, no one will believe me. My thought process was people are out to get me. Everyone is in on it and everyone is trying to see me be put away. And so it was like me versus everyone mentality. You say it sounds insane, but at the same time, it's sort of this like complex, like web of systems that were working together to protect you though yeah it so it actually doesn't also at the same time sound that crazy because it it all makes Hmm. sense sort of how it worked together interesting well yeah to me it does actually and that's what i'm saying too like when i first notice in people you know that it is that paranoia um like and i want this is another thing i want to talk about that you already hit on a bit is like I just find it interesting the content right there's so many similarities among people because I've heard that same story like with our friend yeah who's going through one of the first things when he started to have a break again was it, kind of a conspiracy it was like with his dad right his yep. dad was like you know like a powerful guy right and he was like pulling the strings in his life like he bought the place that 
he works at. Um, and then he also thought like coworkers were putting poison in the air ducts of his car. Like I've heard a lot of that of like, and I yeah, and I feel like being poisoned or my neighbor upstairs, you know, they're, they put something in the vents, you know, and then there, you were talking about the religious, you know, and our buddy too, he would, a lot of it, like a big trigger for him, you know, was like war, like war movies and like yeah. Vietnam and like, there's a very conspiratorial element to it. Yep. It's interesting that people have these similar experiences. I, I actually, um, I'm fascinated by conspiracy theories and uh, I, I was before I was ever diagnosed, but I avoid them now because I never know like what my brain will latch onto. And yes, I'm medicated. I don't deal with a lot, a lot of delusions anymore. I mostly deal with just hallucinations. Like that's the best part about medication is the two symptoms that made me the most afraid were delusions and paranoia. I very rarely deal with those anymore. Um, my antipsychotics have basically wind like dwindled it down to just hallucinations both auditory and visual which still isn't great but in comparison um it was just it's one of those things where i look back and it's really confusing because i don't know i don't really understand why like i did certain things or it's it's just one of those things where i can't pinpoint where things went wrong why things went wrong and when the delusion started and when paranoia like took hold and so my entire timeline of events gets very skewed my understanding of things can be very skewed and then trying to sit and fixate it probably doesn't make anything better it's probably makes it worse well i'm i will say that i'm lucky that medication does work so well so so well for me because that's my job unfortunately is i do have to sit around and think about it because my content is me talking about my experiences so people can better understand it. So I do have to fixate on it a lot. And that's why I think it's important for me to take time off from social media, be able to separate, separate myself because it does have a negative effect on me, Mm -hmm. but I feel like it's important for what I'm doing as well. I have just a couple questions. So may I ask you, and please feel free not to answer what medication are you taking or medications? So I, if it's all right, I would, I actually don't answer that question. And the main reason being whenever I've done that, I will have people say, I went into my doctor and demanded that medication. And so early on, I found that people wanted to take exactly what I was taking and the brain, and you guys know the brain just doesn't work that way. Everyone's brain chemistry is different. What works for me, isn't going to work for someone else. So I'm just, just to generalize, I'm on five daily medications, Mm -hmm. um, a few antipsychotics, one that is a a medication for symptoms of my antipsychotic and then an antidepressant as well. Um, and that's just because my symptoms can cause me to deal a lot with anxiety and depression. So I don't go into the generals though, because I I just have found that people try to latch on to, Oh, it worked for him. It'll work for me. And I don't want that to be the, the case way smarter than me shouldn't have even asked it see I'm, <laughs> that's no, all right no i was thinking the same I'm thing i'm not an influencer well no i was thinking the same thing because it's the most common question i get probably yeah and even so maybe not even just the specifics but you know there are some really new ones out and and that was something i wanted to talk about was medications because one of the things yep. i've noticed is that you know people you know like let's say for bipolar meds they get off because they miss the mania right and they don't want 
the depression. Yeah. And with some of these antipsychotics, I mean, you know, for say like, you know, I'll admit like I was on Seroquel for yep. a bit, right? For sleep. Well, what is Seroquel? It's an antipsychotic. I take the lowest dose of that. I am out. And then yeah. I'll talk to a friend who has like thought disorder, like, oh yeah, I'm on like 15 times that or 10 times. I'm like, how are you walking? <laughs> you know, like, it's like, wow. And, but they still have some of those side effects, right? Where you're like, you're tired and you feel like a zombie. And, the, and I feel like that's why so many people struggle to stay on them. Why do you think that is? Is that right? Well, Seroquel, the dose range starts at 25 and goes to 800. So I've that, seen people on more than, I mean, yeah, my, yeah, but it may go higher, actually, but like, but, but like most of the antipsychotics where they have a sedating effect, right? Yeah. Because yeah. like with schizophrenia, the problem is like with depression, it's like a, a lack of neurological activity and neurochemical activity. But for schizophrenia, it's like my understanding, right? It's, I believe dopamine, right? It's like you have too much. An overabundance on. of dopamine is yeah. what it's thought to be right now. Um, right. I would say. So my entire thought process with this, then what was your initial question? Cause I, I had well, a like Why do, if, and why do so many people stop taking their meds? Interesting if you did at some point, because they don't like the side I effects, did. but then it's like everyone around them is like, dude, like, holy crap. Like, no, you cannot stop taking your meds. Yeah. You're utterly dysfunctional, but they're like, I hate how I feel sometimes on them. And the newer so ones maybe have less of that. I will say, because I have been even recently right now, I'm actually going through a med change. So I think people need to look at medication as an, an ongoing challenge that needs to be addressed. Your body gets used to old medication. Your body doesn't perform or the medication stops like performing at the rate of what you got it. So one of the things that was really disappointing and detrimental to me at the beginning was I went into this thinking medication will fix it. And so I wish someone, a psychiatrist, someone would have pulled me aside and said, Hey, this isn't going to be easy. It's going to be a very long process. It took me almost two years to get on a good med regimen. And so I wish someone would have been like, Hey, this is not a cure all. Basically what we're looking for is we want to get you to the point where you have the least amount of symptoms and you're still functional day to day. And so what we experimented with me and my psychiatrist was I didn't want to trade off my personality for no symptoms at all. I actually believe that if I was on higher doses of what I'm currently taking, I would have zero symptoms. The problem with that was I wasn't willing to be, like you said, some of those side effects, the drowsy, the droggy. And so even though I take a lot of medications, we've experimented with lower doses at certain points of the day. And we got it to a point where it was just enough for me to not have or not have to delusions and paranoia, but I still have hallucinations now and then. And I was willing to stay with that because I'm able to continue being my outgoing self. I'm able to continue speaking to people, doing social media. And so a lot of people, I think, have to make that tough decision. Like, how far do we want to go with this? Because I was on very, very high doses originally, and I didn't like it. I, I mm -hmm. kept quitting medication. I didn't yeah. want to deal with the side effects. And the problem with that is quitting antipsychotics can have a whole nother effect on your brain and body. And so what we started figuring out was I was okay with having some symptoms as long as it meant I could function day to day. And 
a lot of that revolved around just communication with my psychiatrist and a lot of, unfortunately, I want to say experimentation. I don't know if that's the best word for it because oh, yeah. it's not like this. It's not like my psychiatrist was like, Oh, we're going to just, I requested, I was like, Hey, I, I, this med is clearly working. I'm not having symptoms, but it's just too much. And so I would go in on a biweekly basis. Obviously, medication takes a couple of weeks to get into your system and start working effectively. Um, and when I started to notice like certain changes in my mood or personality, I would immediately go in and address it. And that, like I said, was a two to three year process. Um, and all of this happened before I ever found social media before I ever. And so when people see me, I think the reason a lot of people assume, oh, he's faking, he doesn't really have it. I get that a lot. And I think it's because I'm very high functioning with medication. I, if you met me day to day, most people would never know when I tell new coworkers, they think I'm joking. They think that I, and then they see it and they're like, oh, this is real. This is something that he's actually dealing with. And so I think that's where the confusion come from. And there's just such that stigma around medication too. And that's a whole nother thing I could talk about for an hour, but stigma yeah. around medication kept me from doing it for a long time. And also is the reason I constantly got off of it. No one wants to be the 21 year old guy who can't go out drinking with his friends because he just started a new antipsychotic medication and alcohol affects his medication poorly. Like no one wants to be that guy. Yeah. And I think it's like, from what I've noticed with folks is it does, it's just not like, like, here's your first dose antipsychotics. Oh, it's working just great. I'm on them forever. Right. It's like, that's more the rule than the exception that people are going to get off of them, whether it's for the side effects, for the stigma. And I've seen that a lot as well, where they're like, Oh, I, I'm feeling fine. You see that with any disorder. Oh, I'm feeling fine. I can yeah. get off of them. And then it's just this slow, you know, devolving back into that mindset yeah would you yeah. say cody that and i've been wanting to ask you this the whole time and i don't want to forget because i <laughs> would you say that delusions are more disruptive to your life than the hallucinations you did yeah. you already I said def that. yeah i definitely would say that um delusions and paranoia were much more difficult for me to deal with um and they seem to have a bigger effect on my day-to-day -day life because hallucinations obviously when it when it happens I usually have to call into work I can't drive there's a lot of things I can't do mm -hmm. um, but it never just stopped my entire day or my entire week mm -hmm. like usually I take my meds go to sleep deal with it the next day the next day usually I'm better I'm up and going so it can be a couple days at a time it could be you know like right now I'm Unfortunately, with my recent med change and just a lot of stress, I have been having hallucinations more frequently. And so that can come with additional stress. But the important thing is I'm not thinking that someone is trying to get me. I don't believe that I'm in a coma from the car accident I was in like I did for several years. I'm not delusional to the point where I think that this is a fake reality. Mm -hmm. Like I, I'm able to hold on to what's real more firmly than I ever have in my life. And so delusions and paranoia literally change where you are, who you are, what real is. Right. Whereas hallucinations, yes, they come with a bit of delusion. Yes, they're stressful. Yes, they're hard to tell whether or not they're real, but I have found coping mechanisms that help me. I have found different ways to identify hallucinations. And so it's been more tolerable and liv livable dealing with hallucinations than delusions or paranoia.
Oh, go ahead, Lori. With some of the patients I've seen, what we often see is that um, hallucinations will be the first thing to go get better. Delusions are usually the last and, and can take a really long time. And they sort of will slowly just recede into the background and get less and less distressing as time goes on and then just interfere less and less with someone's like daily functioning until it just gets more and more like tolerable and manageable. Yeah. Is that your experience? Yeah. So I I've struggled with quite a few different types of delusions in the past. The one I always talk about was um, shortly after my symptoms developed, I was in a car accident and for I, almost a year after that car accident, I absolutely believed that everything happening around me was a dream I was having in a coma. So in my mind, in that car accident, I went into a coma and everything happening around me wasn't actually happening. It was all a part of a dream that I was having. And so that was really dangerous because I didn't act like I was here. I was very reckless. And I also um, I also had several suicide attempts because the voices I was having would tell me that the only way back to my quote unquote real life was to end this, this oh. um, coma that I was in. Mm -hmm. So they, they told me the only way to get back was to end this life. Mm -hmm. And that was when I dealt with my first suicide attempts ever. Um, very, and I'm going to say this again, I, I'm very fortunate that I don't have schizoaffective, which is a combination of schizophrenia and a mood disorder. I've never really struggled with the mood disorder aspect. Everything I've dealt with in terms of mood disorder has been directly because of my hallucinations or delusions. So I don't have a lot of suicidal ideology. I haven't dealt with that a lot, but like my halluc my hallucinations and delusions would bring me to a point where I, it's not even that I didn't want to be here. I thought the only way back to my real life was to end this one. And so yeah. that was something I dealt with almost a year. I, I literally believe it just, nothing felt real around me and I don't know how to better expand it. Like I literally felt like I was in a dream and I was like subconscious. Mm -hmm. wow. And so looking back, it's, it still freaks me out. I, I get, I get uncomfortable talk talking about it, it yeah. because it's so real. Like yeah. to me, it was so real at that time. That's something I really wanted to bring up, you know, for, and this would be, as well for the folks who have someone in their life who struggle with it, you know, because let's say I'm dealing um, with someone as a, a counselor, but then also some of my friends who have been through that as well. And like, one of the things I try to explain to people and you touch on that is like, you know, I think someone would imagine like a hallucination, maybe it's like this amorphous, but like, no, like this is a person, this is a voice. This is yep. like, and then too, with the delusions, it's like, this is, this is someone's reality. And I think it's frustrating, you know, working with someone who has these or a friend because you're like, hello, no, this is not a conspiracy. The FBI yeah. is not there. Like, and logic doesn't really seem to work all that well. So like, and maybe both your experiences from a professional and, you know, someone who goes through it, how do you talk to somebody who's having hallucinations or delusions? How can you help them? Because it's like, when you say no, well, let's you're talk denying about, their reality. Let's talk about those two separately, I think, right, Cody? Like, between, yeah. like, because it's two different things. Like, to, like, for the delusions, I never challenge a delusion because it, it yeah. doesn't matter. 
No, if you challenge a delusion, you have become part of that delusion. You are now a part of what that person is afraid of. Hallucinations, I feel like if the person is medicated, if the person is like fairly like fairly functional, hallucinations, I've been able to have people help me recognize hallucinations. No one was ever able to help me identify a delusion because like you had just said, that's, that is their reality. If you challenge it, you are part of that delusion. You're probably part of the conspiracy. Um, when my mom and wife challenged it, they became the people trying to put me away. And those are people that like looking back, it's, I can't believe I didn't trust them, but it didn't matter at that time. Cause I didn't think about them like mm-hmm. that. Yeah. So what do you do? Like, you know, I've had this happen, like even fairly recently where someone's struggling with that and like they, they need help. Right. Like, but how do I, how do you convince so, them to get help? Like, how do you reframe it where you're not challenging it, but also you're just not saying, okay, cool. Here, you know, just go about your merry way with this. And so you'll understand this better than anyone because you have talked a lot about the addiction aspect. Um, what do you do when someone comes to you with an addiction? Do you force them into treatment or do you wait for them to accept that they need help? Nine times out of 10, you force someone into treatment. It's not going to matter. They're going to go right back to it. When people would challenge my delusions, I no longer trusted them. But what happened was the people who were there for me and they didn't challenge my delusions, but they were more just trying to reassure me. They would do it constantly to the point where when I did have moments of clarity, I would maybe not go to them and be like, Oh, I need help. But I would at least start thinking about it. Like, you know, my mom mentioned to me that like, maybe this, maybe this isn't really happening. And so eventually I was able to take everything that my mom and my wife had said to me. And when I was no longer struggling with addiction and I was ready to get help, I went to them and I was like, Hey, I think you guys are right. I think I need to go get help. And so I had to come to them. And I know that's really hard to hear. And I hate having to tell family members that. And I'm sure like with addiction, you've had, it's really hard to hear because not only have I struggled with addiction, I have friends and family who have, it's really hard to know that like, you can't just fix it. You can't fix it on the spot. You got to wait for them to be willing to fix it. Cause someone with schizophrenia is a lot like a person with addiction. Like if someone would have put me on meds, I would have quit the next day. Like no Mm -hmm. one's going to be able to force me to stay on meds. If I went into a psychiatric facility, the minute I got out, I was done because I didn't believe I had a problem. Yeah. That's that's really interesting. You say that because I've had that difficult time jumping into that, like challenging fix it mower. I wouldn't think to do that with addiction for the same reason you said. Exactly. Where maybe you can draw insight, but if I'm challenging you, your walls go up and you're saying, and you're arguing the other side, just like if I say, you know, you're, you're an alcoholic, you're an addict. Well, no, here are all the reasons why not. Whereas yep. if I'm working with someone, it isn't necessarily just letting them come to the, it's like, I can help them come to the conclusion. And one of the best ways of doing it is just asking questions, right? I'm not putting anything like, well, is it possible that, you know, this would be that you may be struggling with that this may not be in your oh yeah I guess that's possible and you just kind of do this dance where you're asking questions but you never really state a strong opinion yep and let them like draw it out of them and come to that conclusion and you know say you're in the driver's seat this is your I'm not going to question your reality but I want you to explain to me explain to me why you're feeling the way you explain to me why this is real to you oh okay 
Yeah. So that's interesting. You say that. And that's good for me to remember too, when I come across these situations, because I, I jump into fix it mode because I'm not as experienced. I'm like, Whoa, you know, let's hear some logic. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that's, I don't think that's a bad thing. I think it shows that uh, I get that a lot from people who struggle with, or people who have family members that struggle with schizophrenia. They reach out to me. So many people reach out and obviously I can't provide medical advice. I don't ever try to do that. I make it very clear that all I do is share my own experiences, but so many people reach out and they're like, he's struggling with delusions and we keep telling him it's not real. And all I can say is like, just be there, be supportive. And when that person is ready to get help, and if you're helping them draw conclusions, like you had just mentioned, they're going to be able to reach out to you when they're comfortable and say, Hey, you're right. I need help. And that's when you can jump into fix it mode. Like when they are ready to accept the help, because I know as an addict, same thing you just said, if someone would have came to me and been like, you're addicted to drugs, I'd have been like, no, I'm, you know, this is something I need to do. It's something that's helping me. It's, and so I never would have accepted the help until I knew that I was able to get the help I needed and on my own terms. Yeah. One thing that I, I never challenge anyone, like I never like do any reality testing, but I do say what I do is validate the feeling like, you know, this is some hard shit you're going through and I'm here with you. Like I just be with people like there's, I feel like there's nothing really better. It sucks to be in a locked psych ward, like no matter what, Mm -hmm. like no matter what, it is always going to be hard, whether you're there voluntarily or not. And no no matter how many nice pairs of those grippy socks you get, it is always a bad time. Or those peanut butter scrubs. Um, no matter how many cups of jello you get is never a good time the milk and peanut butter it is just never a good time so i feel like by just sitting with someone and being like i'm here and i'm just here to sit with you and this is hard and i'm here if you want to talk i'm gonna leave if you don't but like doing that in repetition then as a social worker, I'm kind of just a support person. And like, I do truly care about my, my patients and that's why I'm there. And I think, I think they know that. I hope they know that. And so I don't challenge anything they say. I just validate like how bad they feel if that's what they're telling me they're feeling. Whatever they tell me they feel, I validate that feeling. Absolutely. I think that's, I think humanizing people who are going through that is really tough because one of the things I didn't get a lot of when I was struggling with that was people trying to humanize me. And it's it's really hard to ride the line between being with them and a lot of people at that point start, you know, wanting to make the person more comfortable by accepting what they're like seeing or like experiencing. Mm-hmm. And you don't want to do that. Mm-mm. But like it's a really hard line for people because they want to be there, be supportive. But then when they when they start enduring someone who's experiencing those symptoms, they think there's only two options, either tell them it's not real or tell them it is real to make them more comfortable. And the best thing you can do is just, yeah, that sounds horrible. Or yeah, that's, and, and don't ever validate it, but just like you said, be present, be there. 
those were the people I reached out to first when I needed help. That's exactly what my mom did. That's what my wife did. And so when that time came, I didn't reach out to the people who told me, no, that's not happening. No, you're, you're not seeing that. No. Um, I reached out to the people who were empathetic for me, but also still afraid for me. Yeah. Yeah. No, that makes a lot of sense. That's this, cause that's exactly the advice I give to folks when they have family members struggling with addiction, right. To how yep. to keep their walls down, how to be that person when they already, that they come to you versus the, Oh, I told you so. Yeah. Um, that's not helpful. One thing I just want to make sure that we touch on is the, um, homelessness and incarceration yeah. piece, because I don't know, just like my experience, I, when I, whenever I see a homeless person, I, I mean, three quarters of the time, just I'm just throwing a number out, you could see that look in their eye, right? A yeah. lot of times with, with folks with psychosis, and this is just my observation or experience, but there's this, there's just a look in their eye of, of it's really confusion, yeah. right? Or preoccupation, or they're in their own world, right? And it's really sad because, you know, when I see a home, like so many of them have that. And sometimes it's obvious because they're like literally talking to themselves. But, you know, how does that happen? How do we let that happen where so many people end up homeless? And then I don't really know much about the incarceration piece, but why, why does that happen so often? And does it? Evan, when I tell you, I am so excited to touch on this. This is my bread and butter here. This, the homelessness and uh, incarceration aspect is what I like really, really want to talk about because um, I'm going to throw out a few statistics here um, that I've recently checked to make sure they are still up to date. Um, according to the National Alliance for Mental Illness, one in 100 people in the United States have schizophrenia or a schizophrenia related illness. What a lot of people don't know is that even though we only make up 1% of the population, people with schizophrenia make up over 20% of the homeless rate. And that's just diagnosed schizophrenia. That to me seems really low, you know, as far and as no, I think it is low, but like I'm saying, but that's diagnosed. High. Yeah, 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 exactly. It's, it's, it's a high portion. Times. And so I think it's much, much higher than that, yeah. but I'm just using that because that's what we can prove right now is that at yeah. least so 20% of the homeless rate is people with schizophrenia. Now, when you talk about the incarceration aspect of it, homelessness in itself has become a criminal activity in America. And I hate to say that, but if you are homeless and you don't have the mean to get things, a lot of cities are implementing different procedures to literally put homeless people in jail to get them off the street. That's and right. so a lot of people who are homeless are also struggling with addiction because they don't have anywhere to turn to. The biggest reason I think people with schizophrenia end up homeless is um, medication and resources. Um, I am very lucky. I have friends, family, and I've been able to maintain employment my entire time since I've been out of jail and I've been uh, working. And so with that, I have health insurance. I have the ability to pay for medication. My health insurance right now covers most of my medication. Without my health insurance, I would be paying over $1,000 a month just for medication. And so, and from what I've heard, that's on the very low spectrum of, of what some people pay for medication. And so without my job, without my insurance, I can tell you right now, I would not be able to pay for my 
bi-weekly psychiatric appointments. I would not be able to pay for medication. When I got out of jail, I was able to go somewhere. I had people that could help me. I had resources that were given to me. Not everyone has that. And so that's why I think it's really important um, for people being released from jail or prison to have either a place to go, a job they can start working at immediately, or the means to not be on the street. Because a lot of the homeless rate you'll find out are people who just got out of jail, have nowhere to go. They've burned every bit, every bridge mm-hmm. because of their addiction, because of their yeah. mental illness. And you see that all the time with addicts, but we don't think about it in the terms of mental illness either, because mental illness and addiction play such a key role in each other that we forget that a lot of people are literally being thrown on the streets because of mental untreated mental illness. And until we start addressing resources for people before or after they get out. So I mean, obviously we want to prevent people from having to go through addiction and go through the incarceration incarceration system. But if they do, there needs to be implementation and resources for when they're released. Cause that's the biggest issue is recidivism. Yes. I pronounced that word right. And I'm so proud of myself. Um, (laughs) Recidivism is the key issue because when people get out we can either provide them with resources to thrive and succeed, or we can give them no resources, no job, no means to live. And it ends up as an endless cycle of prison and jail. Would you say, and this may be like kind of based in ignorance, but like, so yeah, let's say you provide, you have all those things, you have that safety net, like here in Minnesota, right? If you make under 25,000 or something like that a year and get away with a little more if you, you know but you get like incredible health insurance yeah like better than almost anything else no deductible no copay almost every provider will take it right yeah. so we have that we have some other resources but let's say we provided every resource to those struggling with schizophrenia right a lot of people that would help a lot but wouldn't you say like just because of the nature of the illness right the inherent desire to get off like we could offer a lot but it would still be really different there'd still be a lot of people on the street even if that was offered i'm just curious as to your thought about that be- can i just say one thing about the yeah go for resources it this is offered in minnesota so first of all the, we could offer all that but trying to get all that to someone who doesn't have like a permanent address and just has like a mm-hmm. p.o box to send their premiums to or this or that like that's hard yeah in the first place yeah. also they're staying at a lot of people who are unhoused are staying at like our shelter systems, for example, in Minneapolis, which again, like are better than some in like other states, like Minnesota does have really good resources compared to other states, but like they're still really, really rough down there. Their medications are getting stolen constantly. They're, they, I mean, they have housing case managers, but like the, the housing entry points are like just backed up like there's housing lotteries and stuff but like the housing case managers are super short staffed like there's just so many obstacles and hoops you have to jump through if you miss one thing you get knocked all the way down to the bottom of the list like and then Mm -hmm. trying to stay on top of your meds there's not enough psychiatrists there's a shortage of psychiatrists if you're already on housing trying to manage like all of these things it's like a nightmare 
So yeah. just because you could get the health insurance, like if you miss one premium, then you it it gets knocked down again. Yeah. So it's hard to navigate, even though they're the there. It's hard to navigate are, and organize. Yeah, ridiculously hard to navigate without a social services navigator. So like if they don't have a case manager or just someone helping navigate on their behalf. And sometimes even like the social workers can't like can't do it half the time and we're paid to do it. Yeah. I just wanted to say that. So. No, yeah, well, and I think point. I think there is a lot to be said for even if you think resources are being provided, there probably is places where it's being missed. But hypothetically, I think there is legitimacy to the statement that despite every given resource, people may still struggle. Um, and the unfortunate thing is even with medication, not everyone takes to medication. Yeah. There are a lot of people who try medication and they've tried all the different types and they still struggle with daily delusions, hallucinations, paranoia. There are some people that are just able to deal with it in terms of medication better. Like medication just works better for their brain chemistry. And so I do think there is truth to the statement that no matter how many resources you provide, some people are still going to struggle and mm -hmm we need to find better avenues for recognizing that. And then that's a whole nother issue we'd have to get into. But until we can deal with something like the people who are untreatable with medication, then we need to first focus on the people who are homeless, the people who are sitting in jails and prisons, because um, one of the things I always say on my podcast that people get sick of hearing me say, because I say it so much is my time in jail showed me that most people in jails and prisons are in more need of recovery clinics and mental health facilities than actual criminals needing to be in prison. Because obviously there are bad people out there that have done very bad things and need to be in jail or prisons. I would say that is the minority of our prison system. Most of the people you meet in jail and prison are either struggling with addiction or struggling with an untreated mental illness. Um, and so that's the truth of our justice system right now is that a lot of people are serving time because of addiction and mental illness. And that I think is the bigger problem. So in, until we can deal with that, I don't think we can get into the people who definitely, you know, probably would, despite all of the resources, still not be able to function and still not be able to um, be successful with treatment. Until we can deal with that, we have to deal with the much bigger issue, which are the people who would be able to function day to day with these resources and aren't getting the opportunity because they're either in jail or homeless. Yeah, and I guess that's what I was getting at a little more, you know, was the just the how debilitating it is for some yeah. people. No, absolutely. That, yeah. Um, and I think that's the frustrating part of what I do. I, I have actually um, one of the hardest things for me was getting people who struggle with schizophrenia reaching out to me and saying that I'm misrepresenting the illness because I am higher functioning. And that does make me feel really bad because that's not what I'm trying to do. And so as much as possible, I do try to talk about the fact that there are people who will live their entire lives with this illness and not be able to work and not be able to function day to day. And that I am very fortunate in my experience because I don't want people to think I'm the norm like me five not even sorry me eight years ago that was real dealing with schizophrenia that was real struggling with mental illness obviously i still have daily struggles but i'm so fortunate that i've able i've been able to get to a functional 
day-to-day life and not everyone's going to be able to experience that. Yeah. I mean, would you say that you're, you know, a almost best case scenario? Like- I, I honestly feel like that. I don't want to say that and discourage people who are on the journey because it's not like I have my whole life together. I do know of people who on medication experience zero symptoms. It's not common, obviously, but there are people who have complete symptom relief. And so it's one of the difficult things for me to talk about because I do think I'm one of the more high functioning and able-bodied people with schizophrenia. Um, And so I don't want to misrepresent schizophrenia, which is why I do show what it's like for me during the times where I'm having hallucinations, because I, I think when I started looking back on my content, I was like, that's, what's missing. That's why people are frustrated with me because I wasn't showing the difficult parts. I was showing, this is me days after uh, symptoms and I'm doing better. Now I'm telling jokes, I'm having fun. I'm outgoing. I'm doing podcasts. I'm going to motivational speaking events. I'm living a happy functional life and that's not my everyday life. And so I wanted to paint a more realistic image because that's what schizophrenia is. So when I started sharing the videos of me having symptoms, I did that not for me, but to make sure that I was giving good representation to the people who are not as fortunate as I am to be functioning with medication. So I even wanted to ask this because, and I don't know what the percentage is, and I actually don't know what the percentage is even with people taking medication, but there are a certain amount of people or a certain percentage of people with schizophrenia, even with taking medications that will not, it's like some people say it's like a hallmark of schizophrenia. I'm sure you've heard this, that will just never believe that they have schizophrenia i'm not going to pronounce the word out loud because I oh i know it. it it's um i'm actually doing a video on it right now it's you can an agonist oh what is it i just learned how to say it the other day it's the idea and it's um it's the idea that the mental illness you're experiencing isn't real to you so right. they don't believe they're struggling with the mental illness right I, it's a really difficult word. It, it is. And it, it actually originated in um, people, they were studying stroke patients and uh, patients who had strokes and they did not believe that the one side of their bodies had been paralyzed and yeah. they believed that they were still working. Um, and so it, and it was like the opposite side, right? Um, that of the brain that had had the stroke, the opposite side of the body was paralyzed, but people did not believe that they absolutely believed that they still had, um, you know, working, um, movement on that side of their body. And so that's where that term came from. But, um, so yes, it's that, that term is applied to patients with schizophrenia who absolutely do not believe that they have any illness whatsoever. So saying it could be really hard even providing right. the research. They may just kind of throw it back at you and yeah. be like, what are you talking about? You know, so, you know. and I have, I have trouble talking about that topic because one, I can't pronounce it. And two, <laughs> because um, I have, I have an internal struggle with whether or not that's just very severe delusion because okay. they, it is in itself they're saying its own symptom to me it seems like very very severe delusion because when i when you couldn't convince me that what i was going through was schizophrenia it's because i was delusional and i had other thoughts of what was happening and so i 
I think that's why I struggle talking about it is because I myself, I like I went through periods of my life where that was true. I didn't believe it. But to me, it felt more like the delusion was the reason for that. Yeah, that's where my head went when you're talking about that, where it's just like, because to others, it's so obvious. Yeah. Yep. That actually makes me so hopeful. And I wanted to ask you this question this entire um, time because, and before um, when I was like, you know, knowing that we were going to do this, like um, I've been thinking of this like over and over that I had to make sure to ask you this because yep. in my mind, like you are the, the expert on this, this is your lived experience. And so I have always struggled whether or not that is like a hallmark of schizophrenia or like you said is this just you know like a delusional thought and could it get better yeah and that's something like even even as a person who lives with it that's why I I don't talk about it a lot because Mm -hmm. I've read a lot of studies about it and it's pronounced agnosia I just looked it up but it's uh the idea that someone is unable to interpret what they're feeling and what they're um, going through. And so for me, it's really difficult to talk about because I, I, I have mixed feelings about like what it actually is and all of that. So um, I will say that I, I still refer to those periods of my life as delusions though. Like, like earlier and while we were talking about it, those periods where you couldn't convince me, I didn't believe it. I, I think I was struggling too much with delusion to understand what was going on. Well, I mean, you believe it now. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, hopeful for other people. Yeah, absolutely. And then when we talk, oh, sorry. Oh, no, go ahead. I was just going to say, because we were also talking about um, medication and like people who may never be able to function even with it. Um, I think at some point I saw a statistic and I don't know if it's still true that uh, roughly 60% of people with schizophrenia that are on medications are able to live functional day-to-day lives. Whereas um, almost 40 are unsuccessful with, with medication. I don't talk about that a lot because I want people to have a positive, you know, look on the future of the development and treatment. But I think there's a really real percentage of people who may never get symptom relief. Is that 40% also people who are med adherent or it's literally people who are like, I'm really trying. It's just not working because like, I believe it's including the med adherent people. I believe it's anyone who the study I read was from SAMHSA or whatever it's Mm -hmm. uh, and so I'd have to look it up again. It's been a while, but um, when I read through it, they made it sound like it was anyone who had been diagnosed and had at least tried medication and so it was like it made it's obviously not factoring undiagnosed people people who were misdiagnosed but that would be anyone who was diagnosed tried medication and either became metadvertent or just medication didn't work yeah and to me that's like i mean it's sad you know it is just What's even more sad is that like when you said 60% have a good outcome to me, I'm like, that's kind of high, you know, just how, like what I know of schizophrenia, like, wow, 60% but you're like only 60. I'm like, oh, 
but then it, also like it, I mean I thought it was two actually that was my first law and then I also started thinking okay well how big is that sample size and how many meds did they try and how long did they were they on the trials you know that's like where my brain immediately goes right I I do think it would be higher um if they factored in just people who kept on meds mm -hmm. I think it would be mm -hmm. a much smaller percentage if it was people who were on meds regularly and they were like taking them constantly and right. I think it would be much lower but obviously that's not data I can get a hold of. So and kind of what I was getting at too, of like, you know, just what is the number? Let's take away every variable of people who get diagnosed and then have a successful or moderately successful outcome. Yeah. Yeah. I think it would be really like much lower than many of the other, because of all the complicated factors. And how Absolutely. Long are they following people? Is this like a longitudinal study? Like how are they? <laughs> Sorry. I'd I have to look it all up. I know. It's, no, I should I'm have done more research. If I was going to bring up the study, I should have no, done no, more no, research. Not you. That's I'm my just bad. Like, it's just the way they do these studies in general yeah. and then make these like overarching conclusions. That sounds, yeah. yeah, that sounds like right in some ways yeah like no i definitely when i heard the numbers and that's why i i do say it like mention it sometimes is because when i heard the numbers i was like you know that really is believable to me just based on what i know about my own experience and what i've seen with my peers who have also struggled with it yeah absolutely i want to be mindful of your time do you have just a few more minutes or yeah absolutely okay so one question i definitely want we actually pretty much covered just about everything i have on my list here which is cool um we, and I'm sure all of us, we could sit here and talk about this for forever. It makes it so like, fascinating as much as it is, you know, sad yeah. in many ways too. But um, so, okay, I'm a therapist, Lily, you're a therapist, social worker. Um, someone comes into my office, they have schizophrenia, you know, the delusions or hallucinations, you know, especially in just an outpatient setting. Me as a therapist, what I'm thinking is just go to psychiatry and like, and I'll sometimes tell those people, and it's just like a very broad generalization. Let's say someone comes to me with depression. In my mind, yeah. you know, about 80% of the intervention, and like some of the numbers will back this up with like antidepressants, but like 80% of the intervention is going to be me helping you change your lifestyle, process your past trauma, learn new coping skills, right? And that may be 80% of the deal, but 20% is still significant. Right. And abroad, but like for schiz something like schizophrenia, thought disorder, like maybe 80% or more of the treatment plan may need to be centered around medication. Because if you're not, there's just no hope. Like I, there's like, I just feel powerless as a therapist. So I guess my question for you and Lily is where, where, how can a therapist be helpful? Can we be, cause we don't get much training in that. I, I mean, and this is just from personal experience. I think I think without medication, it's so hard to try to walk someone through the symptoms of schizophrenia. Um, like I said, I, I had met with someone early on when I started experiencing symptoms. At that point, I wasn't ready to admit what was going on. Um, but it's one of those things where I was so delusional and confused and scared that without getting on medication, it wasn't until I got medication that I really opened up about symptoms and I was able to identify more what's going on. So without medication, just, I don't know that there's a whole lot that could have been said to me that would have helped at all. So, and that's unfortunately what I tell a lot of people too. They're like, Hey, my friend or family member is not willing to take medication. How else do I help them? And it's like, medication is my recommendation. 
Um, so like whenever someone is like, Hey, I have a friend or family member member, they think they're experiencing symptoms. My first thing I say is, Hey, if you think they might be experiencing symptoms of schizophrenia, get them in to talk to a doctor or psychiatrist, get medication started as soon as possible. Um, but that being said, one, everyone who's experiencing hallucinations doesn't necessarily have schizophrenia and two, um, diagnosing it can be a, a pretty long and difficult process. And so going into like talk to uh, a therapist or a counselor, I think does have certain benefits. If you stick to talking more about the feelings involved, like are they also struggling with depressive episodes with anxiety? And that might get them to open up more about why, because like I said, I, I don't have diagnosed depression. I don't have diagnosed anxiety. I experience those symptoms due to my schizophrenic symptoms. And so being able to uh, better understand that and being able to, like you said, if you're able to get them to psychiatry, but um, you might be able to provide more information, especially if they're comfortable with you. I was not very comfortable with my first psychiatrist. I actually had to go to a second one. And so um, in between meeting with the second psychiatrist, they brought me to an AODA counselor, which is a, a drug counselor. Yeah. And Although I went there to talk about drugs, I was so comfortable with uh, my with my counselor that I did tell her a lot about what I was dealing with, um, and she was able to do a non disclosure. Uh, what is the paperwork called where they're able to give information about release, what release of information? Oh, yep, yeah, a release yeah. of information. So they were able to um, do that and provide information to my new psychiatrist. And so that was extremely helpful. And it wasn't something that I thought I was going to be doing in those appointments. You know, and I know that there's, and Lily, we kind of came across this with our friend. We're trying to get resources. Like there's some programs here, you know, just like my other buddies at where they, you know, it is, of course, the psychiatry is like the base. It's the prerequisite, but that there are some types of interventions that are shown to help that are therapeutic, like at yep. least like visions of wellness. There's like, there's like pro, there's like, um, yeah, I remember where, where our buddy went to, um, it was like a, it was a specific program. They did like a workbook, like, and it was like an intervention to help people manage their symptoms. Cause a psychiatrist, they're usually just going to sit with you and it's to no fault of their own to yeah. try to figure out the med piece. But then it's like, yeah. how do I, you know, it's like, all right, great. But how do I, you know, learn to better recognize to do my own reality checking? How do I learn to manage this once the meds are in place? Yeah. And I think, I think that's more of the aspect that, um, uh, therapists, counselors, stuff like that could really be beneficial. Cause like you had said, um, a lot of psychiatrists, mostly what they do is meds. They just, they need to get you on meds and meds itself. Uh, if you're like me and you're, you're constantly changing your meds, updating your meds, trying to be as fully functioning as possible. Um, that's the whole appointment. We don't have time to talk about how I'm feeling. We'll talk a little bit about like which symptoms I'm having, if they're increased or decreased, but I very rarely in the first couple of years, did I get a talk at all about, you know, uh, what it was like not having drugs for the first time in several years, what it was like mentally just dealing with the symptoms day to day, what it was like realizing that medication wasn't going to fix what I was dealing with. Cause I think that's also what made me quit medication. It's what made me like doubt treatment altogether was that I didn't get to talk through those experiences. I just, here's medication. Yeah. Sure. It helps a little bit. The rest is on you. Mm -hmm. And so I did fortunately seek 
um, other sort of help. I, I do have a uh, psychiatrist and a counselor that I speak to. And that's, that's the person I work with when we talk about me going in. And I, I, in my case, I show videos of like, Hey, here's what I was dealing with throughout this last week, you know, and then kind of talking more about how that has affected me, how um, I've even been a mental health creator. The, the counselor I meet with is the one who said, Hey, you got to take breaks once in a while. You can't talk about everything you're going through 24 seven and not expect to deal with that in some way. So mm -hmm. it's crucial for people to be able to do that. And I think um, once people with, have met with a psychiatrist, they think, oh, that's it. That's my treatment. I'm done. And so that is something I do recommend is being able to actually meet with therapist, social worker, or um, counselor, and be able to talk about like the stress and I, I would say like just defeat that some of these symptoms can have on a person's mental health. Yeah. And I think too, that's why I, I think there's some stigma even in mental health, right? Because like, well, schizophrenia is so debilitating. The best we could do is get them on some meds and hopefully they could live a somewhat decent life. Okay. They yeah. do therapy. Maybe I could help a little bit. So maybe, you know, folks, they don't seek it. And then therapists like don't feel adequate enough to be able to treat it, you know, because yeah. like this is, this is almost more like, you know, we call it SPMI, right? Se severe and persistent mental illness. We're just trying to like do phase one and call that a day and, you know, not go to that deeper level. And there's just, we don't have enough training on that. I, I would say um, to, to anyone who is like, and I think part of it is I, I don't know if everyone is necessarily comfortable. It's schizophrenia is a scary thing. Um, and it, yeah. I understand that it's scary for the people who work with it too. I've been very fortunate to present with um, psychiatric nurses, with doctors, with, and I, I forget that looking from the outside, it can be a scary illness. I grew up with a mom who had it. And I was very frightened for her, but also with her a lot of the time because yeah. I didn't know what was going on. And so if, if there are therapists and counselors out there who are willing to work with someone after they've been medicated, I think, I think they would just do wonders at being able to get people mm -hmm. um, who maybe like me have been fortunate enough to become more high functioning. But now it's like, I still have trauma from, you know, when I, what I experienced in psychiatric facilities and prison and, and like I, I endured this life of addiction and you've heard some of the stories of people who have been through addiction. It's, it's never glamorous. It's always, it's always really, really bad. And there's a lot of baggage that comes with that lifestyle too. And so um, even though I'm seven years sober and I've been medicated for five years now, I look back and there's so much that creates this feeling of like, Oh, what could I have done differently? Is there anything I could have done preemptively? And then I don't get to talk about that. And for a long time, I just dealt with it. I just, my wife would get the, you know, the unfortunate uh, mood swings I would have because I never got to talk about those issues and those feelings. And so I think, it's so important for people. Um, if anyone with schizophrenia asked me, I would say, don't stop at medication, be willing to go talk to someone because that's really been the biggest part of my recovery and my treatment. And I don't talk about that a lot because I feel like that comes from a more like 
comes from a more sensitive place of me where, and it goes along with the stigma of like men's mental health. It's hard talking about it in general, but admitting that, Hey, I go every other week to some guy's office and I sit there and I cry a lot of the time. Cause it's like, that's tough to admit to people, but it's, it's super important, especially for people dealing with very serious mental illness. And I think it's so important for people with schizophrenia or other, you know, like severe and persistent mental illness to know that there are, you know, therapists out there that, oops, sorry, it's like specialized in working with clients with that, that yeah. love working with clients mm-hmm. with that, like that's our favorite thing to do. That's like our favorite client population to work with. And, you know, it's and, the best thing ever. And I guess that would be more of a question I have for you guys. Is there a way to like, not mandate it, but like when I was given my medication, I met with my psychiatrist um, and I had gotten past, you know, my counselor who had recommended that I go there. I was never told like, Hey, you know, maybe go talk to, is there any way to like implement a resource for like people, whether it's psychiatrists telling them like, Hey, you know, this is really serious. Medication is going to help, but there's still a lot of baggage and feelings you're going to have about this entire process. Like, is there a way they can be better at recommending that? Is there a way to implement that somewhere in the process? Because like you said, a lot of the time you're the first part of the process, um, but then it just kind of stops. And I think that is also a reason why people quit medication. People end up back in the cycle of either addiction or jail. Um, So I'm wondering if there's a way that that could be fixed more in like the industry of mental health and health in general. I'll divert to you on that one. Yeah, it's a really good question. I think unfortunately kind of depends on like what care team you get and um for me i always ask the people i'm working with if they're interested in seeing a therapist um when they leave the hospital um and i kind of explain maybe why i think that that could be beneficial for them not that i think like hey you need therapy but here's where i think that um you might find like I said, benefit to it. Um, and I also try to like, I don't just like refer to one just random therapy clinic. I really try to be like thoughtful about matching people to Mm -hmm. therapists and about the referrals I'm making because it's not just to like discharge people randomly and have them just see some random therapist because I know they're not going to stick with it if that's going to be the case. He doesn't understand. Yeah, absolutely. And so, and then once I, if, if they do, get to the point where they're interested and they tell me that then I pull up my computer I have a laptop I show them exactly you know where I've referred them the person's name like where the clinic is like I try to like be proactive so that I and reduce as much anxiety around the whole thing as possible because I just feel like they're going to be more likely to go yeah and I think that one of the issues is right so therapists you know on average go to school two years post-bachelor's right? And how many mental health disorders are there, right? So it's like, in their specialty interventions for just about, a, you know, for autism, ADHD, there's all these ones that we're just not adequately trained for. But then you go, you do your internships, and you go to certain clinics, like with Lily, that's why I brought her on, because she's around this all the time, right? And you'll probably see that more with social workers, right? Yeah, because if you look at like Maslow's hierarchy of needs, that's what I was saying before is like, it's really hard for like, let's say someone with such a debilitating illness to get to like that self actualization, you know, we're like, 
all right, how do we get you housing? How do we get you food? How do we get, but then when we go up the line, right, to the therapeutic interventions, just coming to my little office, yeah. and if you even make it there, if you have the privilege to make it there, then what training can we have? And we're just not adequately trained unless, again, you're like Lily. So, you know, be interesting to hear, you know, where do you refer them to? You know, who are the few people out there who are comfortable with it? Because like you said, it's very scary, right? And I do like a lot of training now with therapists. And if they were to have someone come in with a single drop of delusion, they'd be calling me like, what do I do? You know, they would be yeah. like, to like really scared about it because it because of the level of how debilitating and a lot of the you know harms that could come with that. So I don't know, for me personally, I think maybe more abundant training and specific interventions for folks who struggle with psychosis to give therapists more confidence and to actually help people instead of just sit there and be like, all right, you know, validate your feelings and not our head. So yeah, that, that could be helpful, you know, just like it would anyone else. But how do we really, you know, get trained to help people navigate life who have the illness? I Absolutely. Agree with that. I agree with that because I don't know how I would know it if I hadn't been where I am. That's why I just call Lily. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and, I, and I'm lucky to have you know experience because I did work in a psych unit for many years, and yeah, um, you know, I've had some friends um, who I worked with pretty closely to try to help them out. So I'm I'm lucky to have that, and I have more confidence. But yeah, unless you're on med, you have to be at like a certain level, right? To then really benefit from therapy. Yeah. Um, so yeah, but yeah, Lily, did you have any other questions? I want to be mindful of both your guys' time. I think, um, I mean, uh, no, I don't really have any more questions. I've just, I'm honored to meet you. Um, I had, I obviously had a lot of questions, um, mm -hmm. but thank you for um, answering so many of them. It's just been such a privilege to get to talk to you. It's, kind of a dream come true really because I just have really I mean to be able to talk to you and to really learn about your experiences and I it almost like makes me a little emotional because it's like there's so many things I've wanted to ask the people I work with and in an acute setting anyway I don't get to see so many people come out on the other side and you know I see them come back in a lot sometimes but yeah. I don't get to see them outpatient anyway so yeah it's just amazing to see you know what you're doing and how mm. you're helping people this is incredible i know how alone and isolated uh some of my patients feel and the thought that you're out here doing this is it's incredible yeah yeah and that's why I, and that's one of the reasons why i wanted to bring you on because i'm like when i came, like came across i'm like this is not normal you know like this is yeah. not the norm i mean there's plenty of people talk about depression borderline oh, yeah. personality disorder but i'm like whoa you know this is a guy who's like on the other side but then also you know like showing the struggles that you still have even though like you're that success or just like with someone with addiction you know, i got all these years sober but i still struggle i still have cravings right it's it's similar yep. and so it's it's super unique and that's definitely why i wanted to get on here and also have lily here too to you know, dig deeper. So yeah, man, I, you know, you're helping so many people. And I, I mean, this kind of question I had in the back of my mind, because I have that too, is a, just a, your run of the mill, you know, maybe more with addiction too. I get a lot of emails from people, you know, who want to see me, but like, I would imagine you get flooded, you know, with emails of just like, 
you know, and, and, for, and it's sad because I'm like, I, I'd love to help them in some way. I just can't like legally or time-wise, like how do you deal with my assumption that you have an onslaught of messages? What do you send them to the resources? How do you deal with that? Um, a lot of the responses I do, because you're absolutely right. I get uh, between my public email and my Instagram page, I get so many messages every day. Um, and I'll usually respond to ones that are more positive, just thanking me for what I do and for, um, just wanting to communicate that they appreciate what I, what I offer, uh, in terms of content. But when people are reaching out with concerns, with wanting to help friends or family, um, I have a few different resources I send. It's usually, um, the suicide prevention hotline. And then also NAMI because NAMI has very good resources for both people with mental illness, but also family members of people that are struggling with mental illness. Um, and so I am, I try to be as affiliated with NAMI as possible. NAMI is what got me started on my mm. mental health journey. So, um, they do a lot of peer support groups and that was my first exposure ever to talking about my experiences. And then my wife and mom were also both able to take family support groups. And so that's usually the resource I provide people. Uh, but there are so many out there and there are so many options for people. I don't want to act like I know what the solution is. So I keep it very brief. I keep it very, I want, I don't want to say generic, but unfortunately that's what it is. I say, thank you so much for reaching out. Here are some resources. I do wish you or your family member the best, but I am not a mental health professional. I am not in any way fit to recommend treatment or diagnosis or like diagnosing anything like that people will literally reach out to me and like i have these symptoms am i schizophrenic and i'm like i wish i could help you i really do because i remember being that guy um and that's why mm. i do tiktok i always say i want to be the guy that i needed when i was struggling mm. and just as a as someone to look at and recognize that i did have issues and i did need help and so that's more what I'm trying to do. I'm not trying to claim to be an expert. I'm not trying to force people into one treatment or another. I just want people to recognize it, whether it's in themselves or others, and have less stigma around the idea of schizophrenia. When people see a news article about schizophrenia or see um, the word schizophrenia, I'd much rather them think about me and my goofy face than the scary news article they saw where someone with un with schizophrenia unfortunately you know hurt themselves or others because that's what people always used to think about mm -hmm. um and now i feel like i've be i've got this cool position where when people hear the word schizophrenia they think of that schizophrenic hippie guy on tiktok and that <laughs> that that's why i continue to do it and that's what i think is the most important part of what i do um and short of being someone who could help the people going through it like you guys kind of on the front lines of being there for the people enduring it this is what i can do for my position yeah i mean that's so i mean there's plenty of mental health professionals but so few of you right yeah you know, especially in schizophrenia like addiction there's plenty of people who are vocal about it but that's what i was saying it's, it's super unique so that, that you know i really appreciate what you're doing as well where you know where do where do we need to go to find you what do you um so I keep it easy for everyone because I tried to change my username and no one liked it. So it went back to uh, schizophrenic hippie on all platforms. Um, I have YouTube, TikTok, Instagram, 
I also have my motivational speaking website, which also has a lot of other really good resources on it. That is codygreen.com. Cody, awesome. will you, and I, my favorite thing that I saw you say, one of them was, and for everyone, just so you know, I'm real. Oh yeah. So <laughs> at the end of my YouTube videos, um, I, it became like a slogan. One of my followers came up to me on the street and they were like, Cody, Oh my God, I love you so much. You're, you're so awesome. Everything you do on TikTok is great. Oh, don't worry. I'm real. And that was so funny to me because I was like, I was like, and, and then afterwards they were like, was that rude to say? And I was like, no, because I don't think a hallucination would say that. So <laughs> it was like, so it became like this ongoing thing. So now I finish my YouTube videos and a lot of my content with my name's Cody. Don't worry. I'm real. I love and that. I think that's like a interesting, but also memorable memorable yeah memorable way of reminding people who are struggling with psychosis or doubting their reality um that you know that that i am real so (laughs) i think that yeah that's that's how i always try to sign off my stuff and i wonder honestly if people have watched you enough who are struggling if they're starting like to struggle if they just start watching your stuff i have a lot of people who buy my merch and the family members will wear it i guess and so like I have family members of schizophrenic people wearing, it says, don't worry, I'm real. Oh and like my, the, the people, I, I have a lot of people with schizophrenia reach out and say, not only does it help me, but also it's funny. <laughs> and that so it's amazing. I, yeah. And that's, that's been a really cool part of what I get to do also is just hear Which from all those people. Done. Yeah, and the, the humor piece too, I think is really important. And that's kind of yes. my shtick and my own. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and TikTok of like, how do I balance that educational, but also humor? Not everyone is appreciative of it because these are, you know, it is kind of dark right now. Yeah. Everyone likes dark humor, but I think for most, most people I've found, you know, who are struggling with this, they appreciate that. And there is like a healing element in laughter and being able to, it takes away some of the power of this, you know, it's big, scary thing. Right. So I I really appreciate that as well, especially from someone who tries to implement that in his own content. Absolutely. And helps other people. Well, man, thank you so much. I really appreciate being on. It's going to help a lot of people. I'm excited to get this out. You are amazing. Awesome. Well, I appreciate you guys letting me join you. Um, It was good meeting both of you. Um, And if you ever, you know, want to bring me back to talk about a specific topic, anything like that, I know my schedule gets really busy, but I can always yeah. try to squeeze something in. So, and if you ever do make it to the Twin Cities or Minneapolis area, yeah. like seriously, let us hit know. us up. I actually think I have an event coming up in July in Minneapolis. Where's that at? Let's promote it. <laughs> um, that is a good question. I'd have to check my calendar. <laughs> I have end up uh, having a message about it. Yeah, I'll I'll message you when I know, when I look at my calendar because what happens is speaking events always book like months in advance, so I remember where it is. I don't always remember what it's for. It might be, it might be Minnesota Nami. Actually, do they usually do events in Minneapolis? I don't know. Probably it might I... be Minnesota Nami. I'd have to double check, but I I think that's what it is. I I would actually come and see you speak. I would love to come and see you speak. Yeah, absolutely. And then, um, yeah, we should, uh, eventually I wanted to do, uh, a meet and greet. So, uh, Evan, if you're ever uh, wanting to, I thought about because twin cities is the biggest area near me besides Chicago. Um, I would love to do like, uh, 
specifically trying to get more of like mental health TikTok creators to come do like a meet and greet with a bunch of different like um, peer and then also just psychiatrists, doctors, anyone else who's growing on TikTok. They don't have to be huge platforms, but I think something like that would be really awesome. Yeah, I know of a few. There's a few of us in Minnesota. I was going to say, there's not a lot here in Wisconsin. I'm pretty lonely over here when it comes to content creating in Wisconsin. But yeah, I always thought that'd be cool to have like a meetup with, you know, not even just mental health because that's so specific. It's just like people who do content creation be kind of fun to wrap with them. I, I found that, um, and it, it might be because of my niche content. I, I don't, I've been like, I've been invited to some of those, but not enthusiastically more like hey we're all mutuals with them we should probably let them know but like um i actually am doing in uh next next month about a month away from today um i'm doing a meet and greet with some uh prison tiktokers specifically uh jessica kent is hosting it and so it's mostly pages (laughs) yeah yeah so uh so it's gonna be mostly like prison reform content creators but also some mental health content creators too and i she told me about that event i'm like you know what i really want to do something like that eventually so like you said even if it's just local tiktokers because there are more in wisconsin and minnesota that i'm finding all the time so yeah i think that would be super cool yeah that would be a lot of fun we could have our own like group i thought that'd be cool to have a creator like catharsis group because of all yeah. the like weird stuff that goes with it and the frustrations and like we could just complain about the algorithm for two hours <laughs> together yeah i uh I, I i always thought it was super funny how like some people will get together and do like the hype houses uh a couple of my buddies did that like i don't know if you know who dr kojo is yeah yeah of course. so him colin ray and a bunch of people did that i'm like oh that's way too much drama for me uh, but I always said I was going to start a uh, schizophrenia hype house, but it's just going to be me and some and, others in your mind and just, yeah, just, just me and my hallucinations. <laughs> <laughs> it's enough company, but, uh, but yeah, I, I do think something like that would be really cool. And I think a lot of people would love to come out, especially since there are like a lot of the people in, I know your area, there's a lot of people with that are getting to have really large accounts. So I think people would like, like a more local, type of meet and greet because they do them all over the east and west coast but i'm like where's the midwest representation you know yeah we have a midwest roundup of creators yeah, yeah definitely so like eight of us. Well, all right well i have I some it. yeah i have some youtube recording to do before i slack on that again while i'm still feeling pretty good so. I, yeah good i know i know that so. feeling don't forget yeah. to send Evan that event, though. I would le- really like to go see. Yeah, speak. absolutely. I'll look into as soon as I get my calendar pulled up here. I'll figure okay. out where exactly it is, um, and then I can send you the information for it. Good. Awesome, man. Thanks. Awesome. Here, awesome. Thank you guys we'll, so much. We'll stop the recording here. And we'll check. Okay.